My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Michael Quagg. Grassroots organizing in the early years of the HIV-AIDS crisis produced a number of important legacies. Subsequent social movements have drawn on both the direct action tactics and the distinct political sensibility of the more radical wing of the AIDS movement, and the movement won practical victories, some of which continue to benefit people to this day. For example, the Trillium drug benefit in Ontario that supports low-income people in accessing prescription drugs. Another important legacy encompassed a range of interventions in the politics of health-related research. The movement in the 1980s and 90s was highly critical of how AIDS-related research was being conducted, arguing that it seldom reflected the needs of people living with HIV and AIDS. They demanded an active and participatory role in shaping and guiding the research. The Community-Based Research Center, or CBRC, was incorporated in 1999 by a small group of gay men in Vancouver who were concerned about how HIV prevention work was happening, about the supports being made available to gay and bisexual men, and about how research around HIV was happening. They argued that the lack of involvement by people impacted by HIV in HIV-related research meant that the data being produced was not suitable to inform the kinds of community-based, grassroots, and patient-centered responses that were most urgently needed. Too often, things like research on risk factors that was decontextualized from the broader realities of gay and bi men's lives ended up reinforcing stigma and informing policy and programming decisions that left some people vulnerable. One of the CBRC's major early interventions was called Sex Now, a research project that involved getting gay, bi, and queer men involved in conducting surveys and community contexts that could then be used to shape and strengthen HIV prevention work. Michael Quagg started to work at the CBRC in 2004. He's played a number of roles at the organization over the years, and is currently the Director of Knowledge Exchange and Policy Development. Though the CBRC originally focused on British Columbia and is still headquartered in Vancouver, it went national in 2017, and now has satellite offices in a number of different cities across the country. At this point, the CBRC's work encompasses a broad range of kinds of programming related to promoting the health of gay, bi, trans, two-spirit, and queer men. Some of this is oriented towards developing and delivering community-based interventions geared towards health promotion. They have programs that focus on developing grassroots community leadership and on building networks related to queer and trans health. They engage in various sorts of public education work, but they are still quite involved in community-based research and also in some campaigning and policy advocacy. The Sex Now survey remains a central part of their community-based research agenda. They continue to refine and expand it, and it has become a data set that is widely used by governments, health providers, and other researchers. As well, their Investigators project, listen for the wordplay, is focused on building research-related skills and capacities among queer and trans men in the course of participation in designing, conducting, and analyzing real community-based research. Though a lot has changed over the last two decades, the CBRC continues to believe that direct involvement by people most directly affected is crucial to shaping a research agenda that meets people's needs. 
In terms of their campaign and advocacy work, a few years ago they ran a major project that mobilized queer and trans youth to resist stigma in various ways, and more recently they've been involved in policy advocacy around things like the effort to ban conversion therapy in Canada and removing barriers that keep men who have sex with men from donating blood. The CBRC's annual conference, called The Summit, is coming up on November 4th to 6th. It will be all online this year, and registration is free. And in light of both the COVID-19 crisis and the uprising against racism and police brutality, the theme of this year's conference is Resistance and Responsibility. The agenda will include LGBTQ-specific COVID research, various racial justice topics, the overdose crisis, sexual health, mental health, and lots of other things. I speak with Quag about the work of the Community-Based Research Center. I'm Michael Quag. I'm the Director of Knowledge Exchange and Policy Development at the Community-Based Research Centre, which is a national gay, bi, trans, two-spirit and queer men's health organization that is newly operating as a national organization as of 2017. I'm one of the handful of CBRC staff that is based here in Toronto. Our head office is based in Vancouver, and we've got staff really across the country I'm 36 and Korean. I was born in Canada into a religious family and also quite conservative too. I grew up in Burnaby, just outside of Vancouver, and I've been involved in gay, bi, queer men's health, HIV, sexual health work as of 2004. At that time, I was doing my undergrad at UBC, and I got involved quite soon after I had gone through a pretty difficult coming out experience. This was happening and I was, you know, trying to survive, make it through school. And I happened upon a job posting. It was a part-time gig to do some sexual health work, which at that time was framed as a gay men's health youth leadership program. The program was called Totally Outright and it was run by a group that I'd never heard of. This was sort of a period of rapid change for me, and I was trying to figure out my footing after, you know, leaving the church and having to leave a lot of my social networks and having quite precarious relations with my family. And this opportunity presented itself to me. I applied for the job and I got it. CBRC was founded by a really small, passionate group of gay men who really were just fed up with the way that HIV prevention was being done, the supports that were being made available for gay and bisexual men, but also more importantly, just the way that the research around HIV was being handled and the lack of meaningful involvement of different communities that were heavily impacted by HIV. And I think at that point, gay men really were bearing the brunt of the epidemic and at the same time weren't being meaningfully engaged in research. The ivory tower research that was being led by different public health institutions and other research institutions weren't really generating the kind of data that was needed to move this work forward. That inspired a small group of gay men in Vancouver to come together and organize some community-led research to start to collect the kind of information and the data that was needed to better understand how governments and communities needed to respond to what was happening around HIV at the time, which was missing a richer understanding of the needs of gay and bisexual men. The reasons why gay and bisexual men were at greater risk 
and in need of greater support and trying to counter the different narratives that were put forth at the time around, you know, gay men engaging in irrationally risky behaviors around sex and attributing things like HIV transmission to individual level behaviors and practices that led to infection without sort of a broader consideration of the social context the determinants and factors that were shaping risk and leading some people more vulnerable to HIV. That spawned some of our earliest and most important initiatives like Sex Now that originated from some commissioned research to organize some field-based surveys across BC through different pride festivals that were happening to go to the community and ask them questions invite them to participate in research that was really done by and for gay men and to also make a commitment to these communities of the gay bi queer men who were participating in these studies that commitment that we were collecting this data not for its own sake but to ensure that we were going to have an impact on HIV prevention work to ensure that programs and services were strengthened that we would have a better understanding of their needs and the priorities in terms of helping to address the epidemic in a much better way. Give listeners an overview of the CBRC's work today. CBRC promotes the health of gay, bi, trans, two-spirit, and queer men through research and intervention development, which encompasses quite a diverse range in terms of programming. Our core pillars are community-led research, knowledge exchange, network building, and leadership development. A lot of that work involves different research initiatives, like our Sex Now survey, which is the largest survey of sexual minority men across Canada, looking at issues related to sexual health, but also mental health and social health, and looking at some broader determinants to the health and well-being of the community. A related program, Investigators, is a intervention that spawned off that other program that I mentioned earlier, Totally Outright, which was providing youth with the opportunities to engage in research, regardless of whether or not they had formal training to engage in research and to give them some basic skills and opportunities to be mentored by other researchers and other leaders in terms of trying to investigate the data and produce different analyses that might address different gaps in terms of our knowledge around the health of the community or different interventions that are needed to better support our communities. In terms of knowledge exchange, we run an annual conference called the Summit. This year, we are running our 16th summit. It's grown quite a bit from where we first started. In our first year, we had about you know, 20, 30 people. And last year, we had over 300 participants. Over the years, it really took on a national scope because there really was no national gay men or queer men's health organization that was operating across the country. So when we moved nationally in 2017, it really provided the resources to more properly establish ourselves as a national organization. Some other aspects of our programming, we also run different community health leadership programs. These are interventions to build skills, competency, to provide opportunities for youth and others in the community who might be looking to be involved. I think that's a big part of what we do at CBRC is trying to ensure that our communities are engaged. 
that it's not just academic researchers and people in more conventional positions of power who are organizing around health research and organizing and mobilizing around different interventions and programs that are needed to really make sure that our communities are engaged in the work. In some of our more recent programs, we recently started a mental health community health leadership program called Do You Mind? Trying to talk about mental health has been a challenge historically, just given the way that funding is organized. In order to do a good job in researching and addressing HIV and other sexual health issues, we really need to have a better handle of the broader context for sexual health. So looking at mental health and looking at other social determinants of health that may shape people's risk and vulnerability to a whole range of issues. I'm interested in hearing more about the community-based research side of the Center's work. What does the Investigators program involve? We started the program the early 2010s. We were giving gay, bi, queer youth opportunities to get involved in gay men's health work, to learn more about things like HIV prevention and mental health and social health. But there were many participants who wanted to take their involvement a bit further and specifically to build up their understanding, their knowledge and their skills related to community-based research. That inspired our organizational founders to set up the investigators, which was set up as a way for youth or really anyone in the community who was interested in learning more about research to participate in this program. It was sort of like a research boot camp to equip participants with an introduction to quantitative research. So learning the basics of how to set up a research question and how to set up the appropriate methodology and to give them some practical experience in working with data. So with all the data that was being collected through SexNow, it provided a data set for these youth investigators to test out different analyses and to be supported by folks with more research experience. Many of the mentors in the program are academics and researchers based in different institutions. And to get the support from them, kind of like if they were in a formal academic educational program, but without necessarily requiring that. I think that's really important because there are certainly barriers to accessing formal educational programs, especially at a graduate level. And so we were trying to bridge that gap. And a lot of the investigators have been involved in publishing and presenting their research at different conferences. Their research is regularly highlighted at our annual summit. They've been involved in developing different reports and resources to help address different gaps that might exist. And why is it important in terms of the research that gets produced this way and in terms of the impacts on the community to have this research happening in community-based ways? The biggest reason as to why it's important to do community-based research is because people with the lived experience, people who are most affected by the issues that are being prioritized in research, they need to be reflected in whatever is produced out of that research. Otherwise, we risk putting forth research and evidence that is being done about these communities as opposed to with these communities. 
And we've seen how historically different research scientific projects that haven't adequately or meaningfully engaged the communities that are most affected by those issues often miss the mark in terms of understanding the contextual issues that might impact those participants that are engaged in those studies. One concrete example might be around HIV work. It's important for communities to be involved in HIV research to make sure that the way that the questions are being set up, the way that the research methodology is set up, is done in a way that is sensitive, culturally appropriate for those communities. Otherwise, there are going to be biases that are going to influence the way that the research is talked about. And that's the kind of thing that we try and counter through community-based research, you know, making sure that we are asking the questions that matter to the communities that are most affected by the issues. It's also why it's important for us to not only understand things like the prevalence or trends around different risk behaviors, but to understand at a broader level what might be going on for those individuals in terms of why they might be engaging in certain practices or what different determinants and factors that have shaped their vulnerability to different issues like HIV or mental health or substance use. The last point that I want to make around this is that it's also important to engage communities to make sure that there's accountability and transparency throughout the research process and to ensure that there's commitment to actually follow through with the knowledge translation and the reporting back of that research. We've seen a lot in the past how different communities get researched by different academic studies to never hear anything back. It's unclear what has been done with that data, what impact it might have had. And often we've seen with academic researchers is this big push around publication and getting things out in different peer-reviewed journals, but the community never learns and in some cases or some ways doesn't benefit from that research taking place because there isn't sufficient effort and resources put into bringing that information back into the communities. That's one thing that differentiates community-based research is that there's this real commitment to making sure that we're not just collecting research for its own sake, that the real purpose of that research is to create a positive impact for the communities. And in terms of CBRC's more campaign-oriented and advocacy work, I understand one piece of that has been a major campaign related to stigma. Resist Stigma was a project that CBRC coordinated maybe five years ago and was a youth peer-led project that aimed to connect with and mobilize gay, bi, queer youth across the country around this topic of stigma. So looking at different aspects of stigma, the stigma that might exist around HIV or sexual health issues, but also broader forms of stigma that were negatively impacting queer and trans communities. So drawing attention to the way that this takes shape, the lack of cultural competency in different healthcare settings or even within communities and different networks, and to profile different youth who were involved in different stigma-resisting or stigma-fighting projects. 
a lot of that was like different writing projects or different resources that were meant to counter things like stigma and discrimination that existed in online spaces and to provide a platform for different youth who are really passionate in fighting stigma and resisting stigma to share their work. And I understand that more recently, CBRC has been doing some policy advocacy. Talk about the substance of that work and about why it's an important part of improving the lives and health of gay, bi, queer, and trans men. There's a lot of different players, stakeholders, researchers who are involved in ensuring that there are good frontline services and different responses to issues on the ground. But there's also a need to make sure that we're paying attention to the broader social and structural factors that are impacting the health and well-being of queer and trans communities. And so it's important for us as an organization that tries to operate at a bit of a structural level in terms of talking about the very significant health and social inequities that still continue to impact queer and trans people. There's been a lot of progress made in terms of the rights and protections for LGBTQ2 people. We have same-sex marriage now. We have stronger protections against discrimination for LGBTQ2 people in various contexts. But we still have this issue of stigma and discrimination that very much still continues to impact the lives of queer and trans people. That stigma that's experienced at an individual level, interpersonally, but it's also stigma and discrimination that operates at a higher level in terms of policies and our institutions. So the fact that we still have a highly discriminatory blood donation policy that is not rooted in evidence, that is still very much influenced by outdated ideas and really stigmatizing ideas about different communities and the risks that they pose. You know, I think it's important to recognize that those kinds of policies still contribute to the stigma of gay men in particular, but also trans people and Black, African, and Caribbean communities who are also stigmatized by the current blood donation policy. So it's important to address those kinds of stigmatizing and problematic policies for its own sake, but it's also important in terms of what effect a change in those policies would have in terms of our broader social norms and attitudes towards gay bisexual and other men who are sex with men. These policies, like the blood donation ban, are used to weaponize are used to legitimate stigma towards gay and bisexual as, you know, as evidence of the fact that they are riskier and pose a greater threat to public health than people who are not gay or bisexual. So it's trying to address those kinds of ideas with issues around conversion therapy. Uh, conversion therapy describes a range of practices that claim a therapeutic or perhaps spiritual mantle that attempt to change an LGBTQ person's sexual or gender identity and that are functionally abusive and traumatizing. There's a lot of folks in our communities who have experienced this, but we haven't done a great job in terms of organizing around this issue to make sure that we are doing what we can to make sure that these practices aren't able to take place. 
that youth who are vulnerable to conversion therapy are being supported and that there are strong legislative efforts to make sure that practitioners of conversion therapy are not able to promote their practices and that we can do what we can to prevent these things from taking place. It's important for us to draw attention to the broader policy environment that influences stigma and discrimination towards queer and trans people and to try and address some of those broader determinants to our health and well-being, while at the same time making sure that we are collecting more robust and complete data that's addressing other health and social issues that are important to our communities. What's this year's summit conference, which is coming up from November 4th to 6th, going to look like? This is our first kick of the can at doing a virtual edition for the summit, which has involved quite a bit of work in terms of trying to think through how to shift the conference from this very rich in-person experience to one that's happening virtually. The fact that it is virtual means that we do have the potential of reaching many more people. Registration for the conference this year is free. We are pressing on with a pretty ambitious program. We are offering three pre-conference events, two interactive panels, one addressing the discriminatory blood ban. We also are holding a pre-summit event on PrEP access and highlighting different research that speaks to different gaps and barriers to access for PrEP. We're also offering a two-hour workshop on racial justice. And this year, the theme is resistance and responsibility. And we are hoping to tackle the seemingly unprecedented challenges posed by COVID-19 and the pandemic, but also trying to turn our attention to the long-standing inequities and disparities that this pandemic has laid all the more bare and more visible things like structural racism and the overdose crisis and some other related issues that have really continued to impact equity and inclusion within our communities. The summit itself will include three days of different plenary speakers and panels, workshops, roundtables that are addressing a wide range of issues related to that theme. There'll be a lot of sessions that are looking at COVID-19 and how that uniquely impacted LGBTQ2 communities. We have different sessions and workshops addressing questions and topics related to structural racism, how we as queer and trans researchers and activists and organizations can be responding to this moment of increased visibility of police brutality and structural racism, which exists within healthcare settings, as well as our community networks, and how we can respond to these issues. And so there'll be different sessions that will tackle that, as well as, you know, panels that are looking at substance use and sexual health and social health and a variety of other kinds of topics that are meant to equip and support the very diverse group of participants that come together at the summit. You have been listening to my interview with Michael Quagg of the Community-Based Research Center. To learn more about the organization or to sign up to attend the summit, their conference happening online from November 4th to 6th, go to cbrc.net. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.